The earth is the Lord's, the Midas trap, and how to avoid it. This is part four. There'll be one more. The title for this morning's teaching is Sacrificial Giving is God's Way of Preventing Spiritual Alzheimer's. Sacrificial Giving is God's Way of Preventing Spiritual Alzheimer's. I still visit my mom pretty much every week though she wouldn't know whether I did visit her or whether I didn't visit her. I don't go because she knows me. I go because I still know her. And she's my mom. But I'm starting now to see it isn't just that she doesn't know me. There's a sense in which she really doesn't know herself. I mean, she knows she exists. She still knows her name is Daisy. But she doesn't know where she fits into life. She has no big picture. It's like there was once a pile of photos in order, all in correct sequence of her entire life, and someone dropped them on the floor... And then we just scraped up the pictures in random order and put the pile back on the desk. She's picked them up, but she doesn't know what order they go in. So the faces and the ages don't form any meaningful story. She doesn't know where she fits in with all the rest. She can't place herself properly. I want to come back to that illustration in a few minutes because it relates surprisingly well to our first text. There are texts in the Bible that tell us what we should do, how we should live. The Sermon on the Mount, the book of James, 1 John would be another classic example. There are other texts that don't spend as much time on telling us directly what we ought to do. There are texts that spend their time telling us who we are. Those texts usually don't feel as weighty, as directly impacting on our lives, but they're really the most important texts, even if they don't feel as compelling. They're the most important because they supply the right motive for all of our actions. The texts that tell us who we are are the texts that that make our actions and our obedience non-legalistic. They make our actions come from a proper understanding of a godly heart. Who we are in God's creation, who we are in Jesus Christ, so that our actions flow out of that kind of heart rather than just like the way you're going to stick decorations on your Christmas tree in a little while from the outside. The who we are texts make the life that flows out of us organic, not artificial, and not legalistic. 
Here's one of those great texts. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 18. It's a long text, and I've got to work with three different slides. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 18. Therefore, so they're dedicating, they're raising money for the temple that David is going to be building and dedication of the temple. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. These wonderful words. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all, both Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. But who am I? Okay, remember I said texts that talk about our identity, the who we are texts? Anybody remember that? Wasn't that long ago. But who, who am I? What is my people? That we should, this is interesting, that we should be able to offer willingly. For all things come from you. This is interesting. And of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you, sojourners. As all our fathers were, our days on earth are, are like a shadow. There is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. All is your own. So see, here's this question. Who am I? I know, my God, that you test the heart. How? How does he test the heart? Have pleasure in righteousness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. So it's material things. That's the test he's talking about here. You have things. You test the heart. You have pleasure in righteousness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. But he already said the ability, the ability to offer, he says, that's, that's from you. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts. She's talking about here testing the heart. Now it's directing the heart. And it both, it all has to do with this, the things, the things they're offering, the material stuff. You can picture David, can't you? Dedicating himself to the construction of the temple. He would soon be off the scene. That's what he means when he says there's no abiding here. Solomon was a little bit inexperienced to take on a project of this size. That's in 29 verse 1. It says that. And so David makes this his last great undertaking for the glory of God. And you can sense you can sense the excitement as the people rally around has to be the greatest building project in Israel's history. You just look at the pile of wealth committed to this project. That's in 1 Chronicles 29. If you just read verses 2 to 8. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. The gold for the things of gold. The silver for the things of silver. The bronze for the things of bronze. The iron for the things of iron. The wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting. Antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to that. To all that I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own. This is not kingdom money. This is David's money. I have a treasure of my own. Of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God. I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold. Of the gold of Ophir. High quality. 7,000 talents of refined silver. For overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord today? So he's the lead gift and he says, come on, everybody. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 dirhams of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Doesn't mean anything, those numbers. It'd be neat if we had a way of putting meaning into them. So I did. Little Google. Forget all the other offerings. Let's just look at David. David's personal contribution of gold in the amount of, verse 4 says, 3,000 talents. 3,000 talents of gold. A talent of gold, by the way, is about 75 pounds. So that's 225,000 pounds of Gold. As of the preparation of this sermon, it's different probably now, gold is valued at roughly $1,350 per pound. So just in gold, David gives roughly, in today's money, $30,375,000. That's just the gold out of his treasury. He's fairly well-to-do. 
must have been hard for him to seriously say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Understandably, it would be pretty easy for David to bask in the glow of his own generosity. No receipt from the government. He gave the supplies for the temple, 29.3, says, out of his own treasury. And then the following verses, they go on to list just the, the magnitude of that freely given wealth. These are some of the largest gifts ever given to the Lord. But then the account takes a strange turn. As this mass of gifts piles up and the people begin to drool over the greatness of King David's wealth, David begins to worship the Lord. The text says he worships the Lord. And and everything changes as he starts thinking deeply about God. His words must have made everybody kind of stop and think about about their ownership of what they had. Who am I? 29.14. And what is my people? There's the who am I question. Who are you? We can hear you guys talking up there, just so you know. Who am I? What is my people? that we should be able thus to offer willingly. For for all things come from you. I mean, that's not terribly hard to admit. A creator, so he makes everything, right? We live here, but we didn't make it, this earth. That's not hard. But this part, of your own, we have given you. Now, now, notice the insights in that single verse. First, there's the issue of what our role is as we live our days on this earth. Understanding it. Who am I? What is my people? It's always good, isn't it, to stop and ask who we are and what we're doing? To have that sort of figured out? Remember my chat about my mom earlier? Where we fit in? What's the big picture? What is, what is the meaning of your life right now? Because you're not abiding here, the text says. You're leaving soon. So, so who am I? Why am I here? Before David would allow himself to sort of gloat over the greatness of his philanthropy, he he reminds himself and all the people that they stand only as humble servants before the greatness of God's majesty. And he doesn't just say it once, he repeats it. He says it again in verse 15, the same thing. We are strangers before you, sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth here are like a shadow. There is no abiding. The NASB, still a really great translation, by the way. It actually has the word tenants instead of strangers. We are tenants before you. 
We all know what a tenant is, right? It's a renter. Maybe you own a place and you rent it out. That person is the tenant. Tenant rents. Tenants don't own. Not only that, David reminds these people that they only rent life on this earth for a very little while. They have as much permanence here as that. A shadow. So this alone should keep tenants. Why is he, why is he saying all this? Well, the people are giving substantially to the Lord, he himself. And he's trying to say that we're parting with this very soon anyway. Do we want to do something lasting with this? Are we just going to buy another stupid automobile? Seriously? How much money would you invest in a house that you were renting? How much money would you invest in a house? You don't own it. You're never going to own it. How much money would you spend on it? Yourself, your own money. Makes no sense, does it? Why? Why doesn't it make sense? If it's your own place, it makes sense because you're building up equity in it. You sell it, you get money. Makes sense. But if you're just renting, if you're just a tenant... How much sense does it make to spend money on that place? And I'll tell you how much sense it makes. That much. We're short-term tenants. And without that understanding, we quickly develop spiritual Alzheimer's. Who, Who are we? You lose your place. You lose your place. You don't have a picture of your life as it really is. You have a picture of your life that's an imaginary picture. You're pretending. Remember the opening story of my mom? We we won't fit our lives into the proper grand scheme if we forget we are temporary tenants. We, We will miss how we're supposed to function in the big picture. We won't know what our lives are supposed to be all about, where they came from, where they're going, what their priorities ought to be. We will exist, but we won't have a big why behind it. We'll just scramble around. Squirrels gathering nuts. No meaning. No big reason. No big picture. That's the first thing David reminds the people of. There's there's more. Second thing, he's thankful that he has so much to give. It's really nice in verse 14, the way he says, uh, Who am I? What is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. That's 14. Now, 
That's a little different. Most people are thankful when they receive gifts. It's a big part of raising your kids. eh? We teach small children to say thank you when they are objects of someone else's kindness. Someone gives them something. You know how it is when they're little kids and somebody, granddad, grandma, comes up and gives them a little something and they're fascinated with what it is and you have to say, and what do you say? Because they're going to forget that, right? They will be so wrapped up in what they have. Is this sounding familiar? David turns the tables. He's not thankful to receive. He leads this people into this wonderful, humble act of thanksgiving because he says, God has enabled us. Why did he give us this stuff? Why, why can I give $30 million in gold to the Lord? Why can I do that? I'm humbled because he enabled it. And that's why he gave it to me. And he sees the big picture. He sees the big picture. And that leads to the third lesson in verse 14. All the wealth is God's. For all things come from you and of your own. Of your own we have given you. It's one of those truths everyone in this room would nod Me too. And not one of us in this room actually believes. It's his. All of it. You may have little. You may have much. But the fact that it isn't yours doesn't register very well with us. And doesn't sit very well with us either. David reminds the people that we don't really give to the Lord. We only return to the Lord, which he has first entrusted to tenants for their brief shadow-like existence here. When I say all wealth belongs to the Lord, I don't just mean, you know, the tithe or some portion decided by the giver. I mean everything. Absolutely everything belongs to the Lord. The title of this series... The earth is the Lord's. And so now we come to one of those big, grand, biblical concepts that we churchgoers kind of agree with. We put on slogans, but it's awfully hard to believe. Look at David for a minute. It's one thing to piously pray those words in some isolated devotional moment. All to Jesus I surrender. I wonder how many people sing all to Jesus I surrender and that year have totally given a thousand bucks to the Lord. These words come from a man who's just given 30 million dollars to his house of worship. And he says, I didn't, I didn't give anything. Wasn't mine. And even what I still have in my treasury isn't mine either. I never gave a nickel of anything to the creator of all. And my question, my question is, where does that understanding come from? What kind of 
heart. What kind of brain produces that God-pumping heart? Well, first, we must be trained to see reality as it actually is. Really seeing properly escapes most of us. It's not easy. You can't just glance at something as important as your life. Proper seeing takes time. takes training. Have you ever gone anywhere and seen one of those, it looks like an abstract painting on a wall. Have you ever seen those things? And, there's, and as you stare at it, there's the picture of something else in it. Do you all know what I'm talking about? I'm not losing my mind. You've seen those things, right? I just have an awfully hard time with those. And I'll stand by Rini and we'll look at it and just say, oh, yeah. If you look at it, you think it's just abstract. But look, there's a horse jumping over a fence. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? It's a triangle with some lines and... No, 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 look. Look at it. It looks like there's nothing there but some goofy abstract design until you, you have to almost burn the retina in your eye, me, eye, you, eyes, and you stare at it for a while. And my point is, you never see what's actually there if you just rush by while you're thinking about something. You can't glance at it. It won't work. That question, David says, who, so who am I? You can't just glance at that. You have to stop. You have to put everything else down for a minute. You have to stare. You have to look at what appears immediately. Here's what I have. I got, I got this. I have this. I have this. I have these investments. I have these vehicles, these homes. I, I have this job. I have uh, these RSPs. I have this business. I have this. There. But you can't do that. You, you have to stop and stare at those things. You have to look at what appears immediately, knowing all the while that there's something more important to see there. Just keep looking. You have to look with intention. You have to look knowing that you're probably missing the big picture. Do it all the time. And what we find in David's profound prayer in our text is, a, is that a first glance at my life and a first glance at your life, look at your life right now. A first glance at your life will leave you with the impression that you're an owner. Everyone in this room, a first glance at your life 
will leave you with the impression that you're an owner. But if you stare long enough and think biblically and think long term, eventually you're going to see, oh, I'm a tenant. I'm a renter of life. The first impression is we're owners. It seems obvious, Pastor Don. You work, you get paid, you spend as you choose, you buy, you save, you insure, you invest, you make a will. It has all the appearance of ownership. That's what we do with ownership. But keep looking at the picture. Keep pondering God's provision of life and breath. And every single atom that composes all the matter on planet Earth, including the Earth itself, then stare at the fact that in... In 50 years, 50 quick years, the vast majority of every one of us in this room will be gone. Gone. Don't just glance at that. Stare at it. Stare at it until you see what's actually there. Look right through to the back of the meaning of your life. Every bank account will change hands. Every one of them. Every insurance policy will be paid out and not to you. Every investment will be passed on to someone else. Every single material thing you owned will instantly be unowned by you one day. And God will still be the author of life. It will still be true that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Here are the Bible's financial headlines, if you want to see them. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Have you been buying gold? It's not yours. No, really, it's not yours. You think it is. You're just renting it for a little while. You can't keep it. Here's the next one. That's the same one. That's the wrong one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell. If you take the world, the world and you take every single person in the world, what is there left? Nothing. It's the Lord's. He lets us fiddle with it for a while. It's the Lord's. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Do you remember that wacky hymn we used to sing? It wasn't a great hymn, but we used to sing, He Owns the Cattle on a Thousand Hills. I'm glad that one's gone. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, of course, God doesn't get hungry, I would not tell you The world and its fullness are mine. I need to know that. God has absolutely zero needs. 
seeing all material reality as it is, rather than how it appears in the packaging of this age, that's the first important step. No one will understand spiritual Alzheimer's. No one will understand the meaning of his or her life. And no one will understand the divine calling, the purpose of all material possessions, until this way of seeing is learned. It's learned. Remember where we are. I said, the question I wanted answered was, where did David get this God-pumping heart? And first, we've examined the art of learning to see what really is instead of just the way things look on the surface. But there's something else. Second, we need the outward demonstration that the faith we profess isn't make-believe, and our walk with Jesus isn't hypocritical. And that leads to our next text. It's why Jesus lovingly linked together authentic discipleship with my giving of my money. And that only appears demanding when we don't understand our Lord's motive. The next text is Luke 14. Luke 14 this is not something we tell people, by the way. Jesus did. Churches don't. Dollars to donuts. If someone comes up here and they want to accept Jesus and all of us, I'm lumping myself in. And we're talking to them. We're going to talk to them about their sin. And we're going to talk to them about Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. And we're going to tell them how he can take away their guilt and their shame and give them eternal life. And not one of us is going to say, oh yeah, and by the way, if you don't give away everything you have, you can't follow Jesus. Pastor Norm, where would you get an idea like that? Jesus. Luke 14, 33. So therefore... If any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now, please notice, don't, don't monkey with what Jesus said. Not be willing to renounce, but actually renounce. Here's how the NASB translates it. So then... None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Again, not be willing to give up. Give up. There, there is nothing in the teaching of Jesus that we, in our hearts, have to quit loving money. And that as long as we don't love money in our hearts... We're out of danger and we're meeting our Lord's requirement. That's a very common misunderstanding of Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 21, where he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, what Jesus means is the exact opposite of... As long as I don't love money in my heart, I'll be fine spiritually. 
Jesus is not saying that at all. What he is saying is what I do with my money reveals the state of my heart. That's what he's saying. Only what I actually do with my money proves whether I love money in my heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Any idiot can say, oh, I just, I don't love money in my heart. I love Jesus with all my heart. Good thing it's, it's good enough. I don't have to give any of it away. Just as long as I don't love it in my heart. No, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. You can't change that. The only way to change your heart, the location of the heart, is you change where the treasure goes. Heart follows treasure, not vice versa. Here's the most important part. This means that when Jesus talks to Don Horbin about his money, he's not doing it to cheat me of joy. He's doing it to deepen my joy. He has to teach me that over and over and over again. There are all sorts of people, I'm not talking here, I'm talking the church of Jesus Christ. There are all sorts of people who will never discover deep joy because in spite of what they sing and raise their hands and close their eyes and do everything else, in spite of all that, they, they still don't believe that there will be greater joy in giving to the Lord than in securing their own lives with their wealth. Jesus is talking about, Don, here's how you follow me. Everything you know to be good and true and wonderful about Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, everything we know about all the grace, the fullness of his grace, all that is in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, eternal life, the one to whom to know is life eternal, All of that comes from being close to Jesus. And when he calls me away from my material wealth, he's calling me toward all those things. But what he's saying is you can't, you can't love both, Don. You can't. I have better for you. But there are a lot of Christians who will never learn it. Text number three. You know what? It's 11.25. Just hold on right there. Singers, musicians, you can come on up. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But he's never going to go into your he's never going to go into your checking account. You're never going to see a debit, the Lord, coming out of your account. And it's not that he's not sovereign. It's that what he wants, what Paul calls the grace of giving, what he wants to do is tie our hearts more closely to him. 
And it only comes if you forget everything else. You stare at that picture, and you think you see what's there. And if you stare at it long enough, you'll see something else. The who are you and why are you here questions. Don't go away when you don't answer them. You just live life with spiritual Alzheimer's. Let's pray.